Our next speaker is Dan Peterson. This is our 20th anniversary of this conference. 20 years we've been doing this, and Dan has given exactly 20 talks for Fair Mormon. So he speaks every year. He's always our concluding speaker. We really appreciate the time and effort he's donated to us. She has a bachelor's degree in Greek and philosophy from Brigham Young University, after which we had several corporations offer him a, a car plus a high salary. Well, no, I guess not. <laughs> several years study of, in Jerusalem and Cairo. He earned his PhD in Near Eastern Languages and Cultures in the University of California at Los Angeles, UCLA. Well, with that, I'll turn the time over to Dr. Peterson. should have saved the applause for afterwards. This is a talk where no divine inspiration settled. Um, so, but I think I can fill the time. Um, I wanted to mention, first of all, that um, I just got a note. Some of you have seen this book that we've had on display back at the interpretive table back there, but there haven't been any copies available. Well, apparently, while I'm speaking, uh, uh, Palette or a couple of boxes with 59 copies are going to arrive at the bookstore. So if anybody's interested, it's going to be available there after this uh, session. This is, um, it's called Name as Keyword. It's collected essays on the names in the Book of Mormon and the kind of word plays that go on if you understand the Book of Mormon was not written in English originally, but was written in Hebrew or something like it. You begin to see that, as in the Bible, you see this often where there, there are word plays on the names, in the stories. Uh, if the name means something, and they typically do, then the story will, will play on that. Well, Matt Bowen, who has, um, who has a degree in Hebrew Bible from Catholic University in Washington, D.C., has found similar word plays going on in the Book of Mormon uh, with the names in the Book of Mormon. And that, from my point of view, is extraordinarily interesting and significant because it, it suggests that the Book of Mormon was not written in English because the word plays disappear in English. They don't work. But they work if you understand what the underlying Hebrew was likely to have been based on the meaning of the name. So anyway, there should be some copies out there. I can't guarantee it uh, because I will be up here when and if they arrive. But we were told that they're on their way and they should be out there. So if anybody's interested, this is a chance to get them still hot from the press. So, all right, well, I'm told that it's... Uh, it's always good procedure to start with a, a joke if you're giving a speech. And uh, I looked through the notes that I threw together. I've been traveling a huge amount uh, and uh, even missed the first day of this conference and part of the second day. And so I just don't have many jokes. So I thought of offering myself as the joke. Um, and so these are some things. These are some things that I've taken. Actually, my wife found them. She was delighted to find them. Um, on on the web. These are some of the ones that are kinder from critics. Uh, there are some that were just not appropriate for a family audience or for a fair gathering. Uh, and so I thought I'd offer these to sort of loosen up the audience. Um, I don't know if any of you have missed this meeting, or this movie, I mean, uh, but uh, The Taper Whisperer. Mr. Enos, the talking taper. Um. <laughs> now, there are people watching this conference. I've been watching some of their reactions already online. For example, it's said that, that yesterday, during one speech, there was an eruption of hatred from the audience toward all critics of the church. Um, I, and someone said, well, that's not the only time it's happened. He remembered a time a few years ago in the Fair Mormon Conference where I cited the name of, of a critic or a, someone who was not altogether happy with things here. And the audience immediately broke out with cries of, Get him, because he was apparently here. And so uh, also arriving with the books uh, will be um, pitchforks and torches uh, for the activity that we've planned after this. Uh, we're going we're gonna to go get some of those critics, because apparently 
this is the equivalent of something like a Nazi rally to some of the critics, and we're all just seething with hatred and wanting to go out and get those bad guys, namely people who don't agree with us. So I just can't wait to see what's said about what I have to say now. Um, uh, one of the... One of the church meetings that I hated most, and I'm, I'm not always a fan of meetings, church or otherwise, but one of the ones that I disliked most several years ago was a, a meeting, an evening meeting on a weeknight devoted, it was a stake meeting, devoted to the concept of service. The special meeting, we all got together and listened for two hours to talks on service. It had been a long day, and by the time we were done, I was really tired, went home, feeling guilty, but tired. We hadn't done a thing. And, and I remember thinking, wouldn't it have been better to have a half an hour of speeches on service and then some projects we could have done, something where we would have felt better about the use of the day, you know? So I'm going to give you some more or less practical points here along the way. Not that many, not that useful, but a few. Um, but the first question um, that we have to discuss with, uh, discuss here, I was sort of assigned the topic, apologetics, what, why, and how. So the first question is what? Um, and a, a verse from Peter, from 1 Peter 3.15, that I've quoted quite often. Uh, Be ready always, it says in the King James Version, to give an answer to every man that asketh you, reason, a reason of the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear. Or in a clearer modern translation, the NIV, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you, to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Okay, now, some people think that the enterprise of apologetics in itself, and apologetics is a word that you hear here, you don't typically hear in, in Mormon circles very often, that it's illegitimate in and of itself. But I, I would argue that we do it all the time, all of us, on all sorts of subjects. But if people ask you, did you like the movie? And you say, no. And they say, why not? You give reasons. If they ask you, are you going to vote for so-and-so? You say, yes, I am. Well, I don't like him. Why do you like him? You give reasons. It would be really odd if someone asked you, um, you know, you're a Mormon. Why are you a Mormon? Because. And that's all I'm going to say, because it would be immoral to give you reasons. Um, so giving reasons is apologetics in a way. The word apologetics, I've said this before here, is, is just the old Greek word for uh, defense or an answer. In fact, in that verse, 1 Peter 3.15, be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you. The word that's translated as answer is apologian. It's just give an apology, not meaning I'm sorry. That's a later meaning of the word. That's not what it originally meant. I've mentioned here before that uh, you have Plato's apology, the apology of Socrates. Any of you who've read that, you know Socrates does not apologize. Um, he's defiant. He, they're going to put him to death, and he says, fine, do it. Um, but I'm not backing down from what I've been doing. It's not, it's not about saying I'm sorry. It's about defending what you've been doing, which he does quite unrepentantly and defiantly. So defense, uh, answers, giving answers, giving reasons. Now, why do we do it? Okay. Um, I'm already falling a little bit behind on my on my slides here, but one of the reasons is that um, we have to worry about the welfare of those around us and about ourselves. Why do we do it? First Timothy 2.4, God will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth, which, by the way, to me is, is a refutation of certain forms of Protestantism that say God willed to save certain people and willed from the beginning of the world to damn others. The Bible says in First Timothy 2.4 that God wants all people to be saved. He's not willing that some be damned in order to demonstrate his glory or something like that. He, his, his wish as a loving father, loving parent, we can all imagine what this is like as parents, we would like all of our children to succeed, to make it, to be happy. It would be a very weird and perverse parent who really didn't want that for a child. But that's what God wants. And because God wants all of his children to succeed, we should too if we seek to be God-like. Moses 7.37, uh, where God is, a is asked by Enoch, you know, how is it possible that you can weep? And, and his response to that in part is, wherefore should not the heavens weep, seeing these humans that, he, that uh, Enoch is being shown, seeing these shall suffer. There will be a judgment, but God would like to save 
every one of his children, as any parent would. Oops, noisy up here. So, the last judgment, Mosiah 28.3, the sons of Mosiah speaking. Now, they were desirous that salvation should be declared to every creature, for they could not bear that any human soul should perish. Yea, even the very thought that any soul should endure endless torment did cause them to quake and tremble. They were very sensitive on this point because they had sensed something of the suffering of the damned, the terror of judgment in their own experience, their conversion experience, and they did not want anybody else to suffer that of which they had had only a foretaste. We should all be feeling that way. The reason to do apologetics, the reason to try to advocate the gospel, is so that there will not be more suffering upon the earth, so that people will have the peace and the knowledge and the understanding that come with an understanding of gospel principles and the plan of salvation, the comfort that can come. Also, uh, who should do this? Well, everybody who's a member of the church, should be engaged in this in some way. That doesn't mean everybody has to be a kind of professional apologist or study Greek and Hebrew or or any of that sort of thing, but everybody should be engaged in trying to share the message and explain why it's persuasive to them. I was really pleased to hear Elder Pearson's talk today when he was saying this is a mission that the church as such, the official church, cannot do by itself. It needs the help of all the members, and even then it's going to be a big task. We all need to be involved, and we've had this message for years. Every member of missionary. Now, a lot of us, you know, I look around my neighborhood, there are almost no non-Mormons to talk to. Um, I work at BYU. They're pretty rare there, too, right? So I sometimes think, well, how? If I were living in California or Tonga or, you know, somewhere in the, in the Sahara Desert, maybe I could do something. Um, but what about being here? Well, now with the, with the wonders of the Internet, we can all reach people around the world. It's amazingly easy. Put up a website, a, a blog, something like that. You can reach people all around the world in areas even where the missionaries can't get to. Let me just tell you about that really quickly. I may have mentioned this once before, but I've, I met a couple in Australia who were there as religious refugees. The husband had converted himself to the church, having never met a Latter-day Saint in his native Saudi Arabia. If you think about that, uh, he had found the church website. He was fascinated by it. He began to read it. He converted to the gospel before he'd met a Mormon. He began sharing the good news with his fellow employees in the office he worked at in Riyadh. Now, you can imagine that wasn't the best idea in Saudi Arabia. And so pretty soon, the religion police had an appointment with him. Uh, He decided that he would not stick around for that, so he took off. Uh, He eventually went to Jordan, where he converted a Syrian girl to the church. Uh, And he was baptized eventually uh, and came to Australia because the Middle East was not the most hospitable place. I noticed, by the way, um, I was really impressed when when Steve Harper was showing the map of the areas that were covered by the languages that that the, uh, the saints, the four volume saints history was being translated into. Almost all the earth was covered except my guys. Did you notice that? There was one area, the Middle East, not covered. Yeah, well, so anyway, but you can still, in a way, reach the Middle East. I was in Iran once um, for a conference, whereby hangs a tale in and of itself. It's a very interesting place to be as an American, um, with death to America painted on all the buildings and that sort of thing. You feel so welcomed. Um, but I was there with a, with a friend who is now Catholic, but it was a form of Baha'i. And the Baha'is... Um, have been persecuted in Iran as being sort of apostate Muslims or something. Well, he was curious to know whether his website that he had started as a Baha'i was accessible via computers in Iran. This is quite a number of years ago. And so we went on to a foreign foreign ministry computer and he found his Baha'i website, uncensored, sitting there on the internet. The fact is that we can penetrate barriers that the church cannot with missionaries simply by putting things up online in our basements. It's, it's remarkably easy to do, and anybody anywhere who gets access, possibly North Korea, um, can, can look at those things. So, every member of missionary, it becometh every man who hath been warned to warn his neighbor. Now, you can do this, and you may think, well, but I'm, I'm not really good at this. Well, everybody can do it, and we're all ideally suited to talk to the people in our circles. Because the people in our circles are, by and large, the people that we sort of think like and know and and understand. 
A farmer will be a really good spokesman to fellow farmers, uh, an accountant to accountants, an academic to academics, a housewife to housewives. I mean, you speak their language. You know where they're coming from. And something that some highfalutin professor may write may not appeal at all to somebody else uh, who's in a different circumstance, but your voice may be just the one that's needed to reach that person. Um, so if you think you can't do it, there are certain people that only you can reach, only you might be able to talk to. Okay, so that's important. You think of Heber C. Kimball, who was called by the Prophet Joseph Smith to open the missionary work in Great Britain. Um, Heber was terrified, if you know the story. Um, he thought, my word, um, who am I to take the gospel, the message of the restoration, to the most civilized country on the planet, the most powerful country on earth, where everybody is so much more, you know, even then in the 1830s, Americans had this sort of colonial feeling of inferiority to the Brits. I mean, if you're going to have a classy person, he's got to speak with a British accent, right? Um, the, have you noticed that in Hollywood movies, the Romans always speak with a British accent? <laughs> I can assure you they didn't, actually. Um, they were Italians. Um, but he was, say, Kimball was terrified because he didn't think he was capable of doing it. And yet when he arrived in England, he was perfectly suited to the mission he was sent on because England was going through the Industrial Revolution and the people he was talking to in and around Preston, Downham, Chatburn, these were the mechanics, the, the people who are moving into the newly industrializing cities who were just like Heber C. Kimball, right? I mean, if they had sent some intellectual or somebody else, probably wouldn't have had any impact at all. But Brother Kimball was perfect for that audience. There was an audience that he was perfect for, and he was sent directly to them. He found them. So how are we supposed to do this? Well, the first thing I would suggest is that we listen. It's really important to listen to where people are coming from, to understand who they are, what they are, what their concerns are, and so on. A perfect example of this, of reaching people where they are, is the speech of Paul on Mars Hill. Do you remember that, where he goes to Mars Hill and he's speaking to Athenians? Now, Paul was ideally suited, again, to take the gospel around the Mediterranean basin. The Lord chooses his instruments well. Paul was a really devout Jew, educated in the strictest sect of the Pharisees and all that sort of thing, but what else was he? He was a Roman citizen. He could go anywhere he wanted, and he was bilingual, at least. He knew Greek. He could speak Greek, and he knew the literature. And you see that perfectly well illustrated in his speech on Mars Hill. This was a case where having that intellectual background was useful. He goes up onto Mars Hill, which is shown here in an old photograph, um, in Acts 17, verses 22 to 31. And I'm going to quote that passage from the New American Standard Bible. Um, so, uh, Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus, Mars Hill, and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now this was their way of covering their bases. You know, that maybe there was a God they hadn't represented with a statue there. So, you know, this is to the guy we haven't, you know, we don't want to offend anyone by not covering the, all of them. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, that I proclaim to you. He says, I'm here on behalf of the unknown God, the God you don't know. He's not preaching to Bible believers. They haven't even, you can't even buy a cheap Bible in an Athenian bookstore in the first century, right? I mean, they've never heard of it. They know none of this stuff. He can't preach to them about what Moses had to say. He can't talk to them about uh, the biblical history. It would mean nothing to them, absolutely nothing. So he says, therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his children. Um, now, what's he doing there? When he, when he says, we are also his children, he's actually quoting a pagan god, Aratus of Cilicia, who was actually writing about Zeus. 
But Paul takes a poem about Zeus and applies it to the God of the Bible. He's, he's reasoning with them where they are. Quoting the Bible wouldn't have meant anything, but quoting them uh, a poet who's actually from their region, um, that means a lot to them. And so um, he says, being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. You see, he never appeals to the Bible. He, he listens to them, he pays attention, he walks around, he notices this altar, and he says, that's, my, that's what I'm going to latch on to here. That's going to be the basis of my approach. And that's what you have to do. You listen first, all right? Um, Here's a story relevant to that from Alma 18, verses 24 to 28. Very brief. This is the story of Ammon and King Lamoni, which I've always loved and which I've cited here before, I think. And Ammon began to speak unto him, unto King Lamoni, the Lamanite, with boldness, and said unto him, Believest thou that there is a God? And he answered and said unto him, I do not know what that meaneth. And then Ammon said, Believest thou that there is a great spirit? And he said, Yea. And Ammon said, this is God. Do you see what he's doing? He's finding out where Lamona is and then approaching him on that level. Let's establish a common language. Now, I can give you a counterexample of that. This is one that stayed in my memory for a long time. I don't know if you've ever had experiences, I've had a few, where you think, I should have intervened, but I didn't. You feel guilty for years afterwards. I should have said something, I didn't say something. This is a case where I didn't know what to do. Um, we were driving my family and I down to California many years ago and we, we stopped off in St. George for a little bit of break and thought we'd take the kids in and maybe see a film at the visitor's center or something, give them a little gospel instruction on the way down. And uh, we walked in and sure enough, we, we watched a movie there in the visitor's center in the St. George Temple. Um, and there was a German couple that were listening to somebody at the counter in the visitor's center and he was speaking to them about Noah's Ark and um, the dimensions of Noah's Ark. We saw this movie, it was probably, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes long, and we came out and the, he was still haranguing them on Noah's Ark and how many cubits it was and all that sort of thing. And you could see from their faces, just how do we get out of here? You know, we don't want to offend this nice old fellow, but this is excruciatingly boring and, and I, can't, I was thinking to myself you know, I started a German speaking mission may I can go over but I, I didn't do it I thought maybe I could save them um, I didn't do it and for all I know they're there still um, <laughs> but, but I thought what are they going to take with them from this experience we stopped in we just wanted to learn what this building is and who are the Mormons and, and now we know everything we never wanted to know about the dimensions of Noah's Ark. Maybe he moved on to Leviticus and the dimensions of the tabernacle. I don't know. There are years of work to be done there. Um, but, you know, I, I'm pretty sure that's not what they were there to talk about. Uh, and as I, I never, while we were standing there going in and coming out, I don't think they ever said a word. They just kept shifting on their feet and wondering how to get away and that sort of thing. Anyway, you need to listen to people. You need to be sensitive to them. Uh, listen to where they're coming from. And that's partially also related to listening to the Spirit. Sometimes the Spirit should tell you, shut up. You know, you've gone on long enough. And you want to speak in the language they know. And that's not just German or French or Chinese or something like that. Doctrine and Covenants 124 says, These commandments are of me and were given unto my servants in their weakness after the manner of their language, that they might come to understanding. And that's what we ought to be trying to do as well. Think of Jesus and his parables. He's trying to talk to the Palestinian shepherds and workers of his time on the level that they can understand. He doesn't use abstruse theological language. Uh, he's not speaking in abstractions. He's talking about sheep and goats and sheep pens and rocks and rock carvers and all that sort of thing. This is language that ordinary people could understand. It's very concrete and he's a, a wonderful model for us and he's not the only one. The man that I consider the greatest Christian apologist of the past hundred years by far is C.S. Lewis. This is not a common image that you see of him, but there he is about to enter the wardrobe 
if that means anything to you. I actually stuck my hand in that wardrobe. It's now in Wheaton, Illinois, of all things, by the way, um, in a little museum there devoted to Lewis and Tolkien and Charles Williams, a couple of others, G.K. Chesterton. And the curator of the thing, and there was no one there, and the curator said, would you like to stick your hand in? And I did. But all I hit was the back of the wardrobe. It was, I was hoping for snow, but... Um, anyway, C.S. Lewis um, makes an interesting comment once in one of his lectures. He, he thought that every theology graduate of, of uh, Oxford University ought to be required as a kind of senior thesis to do a presentation to a group of RAF mechanics, Royal Air Force mechanics. He said because they take refuge so often in theological abstractions and jargon and so on. If they can't explain it to a group of intelligent non-academics... And these RAF mechanics, he said, they're bright. They, they wouldn't be mechanics on airplanes if they were stupid. Um, they're bright, but they're not academics. So if he can't explain a concept to them, he probably doesn't understand it himself. He thought that ought to be part of the examination for every graduate uh, of Oxford in the Divinity School there. And I think that's a, a wonderful uh, rule, a rule. And, of course, Lewis was supremely good at that. Now, one of the things that we have to know about approaching other people is that... Um, we can no longer count on certain common language. Um, not only because sometimes we're preaching in places, China and so on, where the Bible isn't well known, but because the biblical language that was common to many Americans two generations ago, three generations ago, they all kind of knew the stories and they all kind of presumed the Bible to be true, even if they didn't know it, even if they just had a copy and it was kind of untouched in a shrine on their shelf. Nevertheless, they paid lip service to the Bible. You can't count on that anymore. Uh, biblical belief, not necessarily so. So you have to, again, listen to where they're coming from. Um, we need probably to find new language. I think the church is struggling with this right now. How do we approach people out there in, a, in an increasingly post-Christian society, even in the United States, certainly in Europe and in other places throughout the world? How do we approach them? How can we, how can we appeal to them? Uh, I would say one suggestion is the fundamental needs that humans have are the same as they always have been. Um, now, um, we have to phrase it differently, but everybody has feelings of loneliness, wondering if his or her life has any significance, if there's any point to the whole thing. All of those questions are still out there. We just need to find different ways to approach them. Maybe, I think, we need to go back to basic intuitions. The scriptures start off with a very basic one, or don't start off, but you have this passage from the Psalms. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. The sheer sense of wonder that people have at the universe uh, is a place where you can sometimes start, because people have this intuition. It may not be a rational argument, but it's an intuition that's powerful for many. You see a sunset, and you think, this world can't be all there is. Or, There's got to be a point to this. This is just too beautiful. Um, even um, Carl Sagan, for example, said, gosh, science can be a source of spirituality. You know? and, and he said a religion that appealed to that would be the most powerful religion in the world. I happen to agree with that. I think that's true. And I think we can tell the story using some of that language, that approach, as well as just the narrowly biblical language that we can use of some audiences. Do you have a sense of wonder under the Milky Way at night? Do you, are you amazed when you look through a microscope and you see the orderliness of certain things? Do snow crystals astonish you? I mean, where, where can we get you? And just if you can have an intuition that there's something going on here. That may be enough to reach certain people. Romans 1.20 in the New International Version. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. I mean, you can all see it if you open your mind to this. All right. There are other things that we can do. Um, we can raise troubling, thought-provoking questions. We can, I like the phrase, we can try to create doubts about doubts. Hey, people wonder, you know, is my worldview totally adequate? Do I, do I have it down? Um, I've told the story before, I think, but uh, my father was not a member of the church. Uh, as I was growing up, I baptized, baptized him on the night that I was set apart as a missionary. Um, it was the high point of my mission as far as baptisms went. Um, but... 
I remember him telling me that one of the turning points for him was when he began reading some books by Hugh Nibley. I had come under the spell of Hugh Nibley already in high school, and, uh, and he began reading these things, and he'd been around the church for a long time. He'd married a, a kind of Mormon and my mother, um, and, and he said one day it just suddenly occurred to him, could this possibly be true? I mean, it, he'd never really thought of that before, but it, it began to present itself as a real possibility, and then the, the rest was history after that. Another thing, can we provide hope? Um, I'll tell you, you know, I've, I've had experiences, many of you have, with, with losing loved ones, sometimes unexpectedly, um, sometimes very painfully. And at moments like that, the gospel offers very real hope. If we find out that people need that kind of hope, I don't want us to be ghoulish or vulturish, you know, or th that sort of thing, but we can sometimes speak to them at those times and offer the comfort that we know the gospel can offer. Um, Christ brings peace, and if we can share that with people, they will listen. They may not have been Christians before that or have seriously thought about anything, but most people, when they hit those moments, when something terrible has happened to them and taken them out of their neat life plan and so on, most people are open to at least thinking about something. Of course, in our society, the society specializes in sort of keeping us busy. I like the line from T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets about how we're distracted from distraction by distraction. Um, we're so busy running around that we try not to take time to think. That's why you want to get them out there occasionally under the Milky Way or at a sunset or, or looking over the ocean and the expanse of the sea, just to think. Um, so you have to reach them when they're ready. They may not always be ready. And then you have to listen and realize this is not the time. Some other time may be. When should we do it? Um, we're told to be ready always. Um, in that passage from First Peter that I quoted. So when? Always. You don't do it always, but you should be ready always. You should always be listening for when the time is right. There's also the question of what I call triage. You sometimes have to ask, is this person ready right now? Um, you know, triage is the principle in medicine where you, you look at a disaster scene maybe. Some people are beyond help. Well, sorry, We've got limited personnel, we just can't deal with this. Some people need it urgently, and some people have, you know, a flesh wound, they don't really need much attention at all. You have to decide. And so we have to be asking ourselves, who is ready at this time? It's not everybody at this time. This is part of listening, paying attention. But if you keep your eyes open, if you pray for spiritual guidance, you might find people who are ready at a certain time. You might find opportunities when you can say something or do something. There will be times when you'll feel constraint not to do something. This is not the time. Matthew 7, 6, quoting the Savior, Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. Maybe you've had the experience, I certainly have, of occasionally saying something when the Spirit was kind of telling me, no, don't do this, and it just is a disaster. You know, I've seen people on Facebook try to share a sacred experience, and I think, no, don't do this. There are people out here who will turn and rend you, and it won't help. Um, so there are times when you just pass by. Whatsoever, whosoever shall not receive you, the Lord says in Matthew 10, 14, nor hear your words when you depart out of that house or city, shake off the dust of your feet. I mean, just leave. It's not the right time, the right place. It may be later on. You don't. You don't know. Avoid the spirit of contention. When it starts getting bad, you know it's the wrong time. And yet I've seen people online especially just keep going because at a certain point the ego kicks in. I'm not going to be defeated by this person. I happen to think that it may be testosterone in a lot of cases. You know, just it's almost never women. Um, and they just keep at it and at it and at it. And you think, you know, the chance of actually having an impact on this person was lost three hours ago. This has just turned ugly. There is no point. And there are a lot of people in this world that you could be talking to, but not this one, not right now. I had an experience in Switzerland that, that uh, was meaningful to me um, early on in my mission there. I went with a companion, uh, I think it was my first week in the mission field, and we hadn't gotten in any doors. And finally we got in one, and the fellow brought us in. He just wanted to argue. He just argued and pushed back at every point. But I was thinking, well, at least we're in, a, in an apartment. I mean, we're talking to somebody. My companion stood up and said, well, thank you very much. It's been great talking with you, you know. We're going to move on now. And we got outside and I said, but, but Elder so-and-so, why are we leaving? I mean, at least we were talking with him. And he said, look, 
There are hundreds of thousands of people in this particular canton of Switzerland who haven't heard the gospel. We don't have time for this kind of thing. We have to keep moving. That was a powerful lesson for me. So when it grows contentious, move along. Little, if anything, will be gained by sticking around and fighting. Be responsive to the spirit, to promptings. I've mentioned this before. The, the really spectacular case is Wilfred Woodruff. When he was having considerable success in the Staffordshire Potteries, uh, and suddenly the Spirit said, this is the last time you're going to meet with these people. Do you remember the story? And he goes to Herefordshire. And, and there, he baptizes hundreds of people on the John Benbow farm. Because the harvest was even greater there than it was in the place that he was leaving. He was shocked at the command, but he was receptive to it, and so he moved along. Also, another principle to keep in mind is you don't need to die on every hill. Some principles are really important and some are not. If somebody doesn't like Mormon hymns, fine. It's not that important. If they don't like Mormon architecture, your chapels are stupid looking, fine. It's not worth arguing about. Um, There are certain issues that are really important. And again, we spend the time where the time is best spent. There are limited numbers of us and millions, billions of people that we haven't reached. Don't waste time. Be sensitive. Move on. Um... Years ago, my friend Lewis Midgley, who was, I was very pleased, uh, who was honored today, alerted me to an anecdote that the eminent Protestant church historian Martin Marty once used to make a point about Mormonism. The famous 18th century French hostess Marie de Vichy-Chamron, the Marquis de Defon, friend of Voltaire and other leading intellectuals of her day, was conversing with the Cardinal de Polignac. And he told her that the martyr Saint-Denis who was the first Christian bishop of Paris, had taken up his head and walked a hundred miles after his execution. Madame de Dufon replied, in such a promenade, it is the first step that is difficult. (laughs) Now, she meant, of course, um, that it's not the claim that Saint-Denis walked a hundred miles that uh, poses a difficulty. Maybe he really walked only 99 miles. I mean, we shouldn't fight about that. Perhaps he walked 102. Who cares? Those differences don't mean anything. The fundamental question is whether after his beheading he walked at all. If that essential point has been granted, the rest is just a footnote, okay? So, so with, it's like that with the gospel, it seems to me. We can argue the branches all the time, you know, and we can go on for years with this, but there are certain fundamental issues that, if granted, pretty well settle the question. Um, You may not like Mormon hymnology or Mormon chapel architecture or something like that, but if you're convinced that the Lord is guiding the church, that the Lord revealed the Book of Mormon and called Joseph Smith, yeah, that's not just, it's not very important, okay? Now, I'm particularly preoccupied right now with a particular project that I'll mention to you. The reason I missed the first day of this conference was I spent Monday, Wednesday, and Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday uh, back in New York and then in Virginia interviewing people for a film project that we're working on at the Interpretive Foundation. The Lord has given us only one set of secular evidence for the Book of Mormon. He didn't give us archaeological data. We we find interesting things. Nobody is more enthused about that kind of thing than I am. I've lectured about it scores and scores of times. Times, but he's, he gave us one set of evidence, and that's the witnesses. They are prophesied in the Book of Mormon. They're referred to in the Doctrine and Covenants. Their testimonies have appeared in every edition of the Book of Mormon since 1830 in every single language. And so it seems to me that we ought to be concentrating on them. And so one of the projects that we've undertaken now is to do a, a major film project about the witnesses because the story needs to be told. I hear all the time from people who've left the church or are on their way out of the church, oh, you know, when I found out the witnesses never really claimed to actually see anything with their eyes. They never claimed to hear anything with their ears. They never actually claimed to touch anything with their hands. Well, then I just thought, to heck with it all. But that's not what the witnesses said. And so I want to tell this story again as, as powerfully as we can tell it to make that point. You can still reject their testimony, but you better know what the testimony is. Then you can dismiss it if you want. But they talked about seeing with their eyes, holding with their hands, hearing with their ears. They were very forceful about it. You know this. But the story hasn't been told for a long time. There's one movie that was done 50 years ago this year called The Three Witnesses. It had a huge impact on me. But it's 50 years old. Nobody watches it. I found it online um, 
I don't know, a year or two ago and watch it. And I thought, good grief, it does look half a century old. I mean, it, we need to tell the story afresh and get that story out there. So, um, so that I'm really preoccupied with. The, the tangibility of this experience, it is something that just, well, I, I was, I was uh, hearing just the other day uh, about one atheist grad student at Stanford, I think maybe he's on the faculty at Stanford, I don't know, who, who said, you know, I'm not a Mormon, I'm not even a theist, but he says the witnesses are the one thing that keeps me awake at night. <laughs> well, they were meant to keep atheists awake at night. They're meant to keep skeptics awake, okay? They're, they are really difficult to deal with, and I want to put that right out there, okay? So, you may think, well, but I can't do this. Well, the fact is there's a role for all of us, and there are organizations that are supplying resources. Uh, you've heard some mention of them uh, at this conference. Um, Fair Mormon, Book of Mormon Central, the Interpretive Foundation. And now we've joined together to some degree, are still working out the details of, of how to come together in a more uh, forceful and effective way as Mormon voices. And you can help with this. Um, and again, I was delighted to hear Elder Pearson talk today. You can imagine why. Um, everybody can contribute. Everyone can in one way or another. You're familiar with the passage from 1 Corinthians 12 on this. I'll quote the NIV version just for freshness. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. So you may think, I can't do this. I have nothing to contribute. You can, and you do. So I encourage you to volunteer. And if we're slow on the uptake volunteer again um, because we're volunteers ourselves and with lots on our plates and things fall between the cracks and I've had people unfortunately who've written to me saying gee I'd like to offer my services and I've lost the emails you know I anyway feel guilty about that but please insist you know there, there's work that can be done we're understaffed and it's hard for us to keep up with what we're doing and so we need help um, these passages from numbers come to mind um, this is Moses Moses is complaining. I'm not able to bear all this people alone because it is too heavy for me. And the Lord said unto Moses, Gather unto me 70, of the, 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom thou knowest to be the elders of the people, and officers over them, and bring them unto the tabernacle of the congregation, that they may stand there with thee. And I will come down and talk with thee there, and I will take of the spirit which is upon thee, and will put it upon them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with thee that thou bear it not thyself alone. And Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord and gathered the 70 men of the elders of the people and set them round about the tabernacle. And the Lord came down in a cloud and spake unto him and took of the spirit that was upon him and gave it unto the 70 elders. And it came to pass that when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied and did not cease. But there remained two of the men in the camp. The name of the one was Eldad and the name of the other Medad. And the spirit rested upon them. And they were of them that were written, but went not out unto the tabernacle, and they prophesied in the camp. And there ran a young man and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad do prophesy in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of Moses, one of his young men, answered and said, My Lord Moses, forbid them. And Moses said unto him, Envious thou for my sake? Would God that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. Now I think that's partly what we heard from Elder Pearson today. That the church can't, as church, do it all. It needs the members to do it. It needs organizations like these three and others to do it, and, and concerned individuals. Matthew 9, New Testament version of the same message. Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Well, another thing that you can do besides volunteering, and this sounds crass, and as the head of a foundation, I've sometimes begun to think of myself as a television evangelist. Donate. I will personally pray over every love gift. Um, <laughs> you know, um, I have a critic. I refer to him as my malevolent stalker. Um, who has been following me for 15 years manufacturing stories about me. And among the, other, among the things he says about me is that I take in a seven-figure apologetic salary from the church. I love the thought of it. 
Um, and it's true, I take in seven figures, they're all zeros. Um, the bylaws of the Interpreter Foundation, I'm also on the board of FAIR, I, that's very lucrative too. Um, you know, um, but the, the bylaws of, of the Interpreter Foundation allow me to draw up to $500 annually in compensation, you know, salary. I think there are four of us or five of us that are now allowed that amount, $500. None of us has ever done it. Several of us are donors. I mean, anyway. But, hey, if you donate enough, I've always wanted platinum bathroom fixtures. So, um, but no, these organizations are often cash-strapped. I mean, it has been a struggle. There have been times when Fair Mormon was in serious trouble, facing difficulties. And... These organizations need help, and, uh, and Interpreter and Book of Mormon Central, I know, we're all facing, you know, we're not in crisis, but the funds are not infinite. So, um, that's just a nudge. All right, now another thing I would say is share things with us. Share the things that we do, or good things that you see online. Share Mormon moments. This isn't all about the three organizations I've just mentioned. They're, the church is putting out videos to be shared on blogs, online, on Facebook, with friends, shared with your family members, and so on. There's good stuff. Book of Mormon central materials that you can share, interpreter articles, things from, from this conference. Help people to know that there are, there are answers. Quite often the feeling that people have is that they're alone. Um, that if they are hit with a, with a dilemma, with a problem, with a challenge to their faith, they just think, crazily or not, that there's just nobody else who's ever dealt with this. But quite often there is somebody who's dealt with it. There are good materials available. But we don't get the word out. I mean, right, people don't hear about these things. They haven't heard of these organizations. They don't know that resources are available. People need to tell them, and we can't do all the telling. It has to be word of mouth in many cases. When you go back to your wards, if there's somebody who's struggling, say, I think I know of something that might be helpful to you. Um, Talk about these things. Tell them. Um, also, write yourself. Share your testimony. Do whatever you can. Um, Elder Pearson mentioned the fact that most of the world has never heard of Latter-day Saints, and of those who have heard, a substantial proportion, half or more, have negative impressions of us. One of the things that most overcomes those negative impressions is knowing a Latter-day Saint. Now, in my case, that wouldn't work. If they got to know me, you know. Uh, my online reputation is totally accurate. In fact, for several blocks around my house, it's just a wasteland, right? Um, but, uh, but for most Latter-day Saints, if you get to know them, they're actually decent people. They're normal. They're not weird. Well, I mean, anyway, every word has some of those, too. But, but, uh, but it helps if they get to know us. It helps, he said, the personal touch. He puts something up, up online about your own experience. You don't have to preach. Just tell about your life. Just... Let people know what it's like to be a Latter-day Saint. Share your testimony in whatever way you can. Uh, get to know people. Be open and forthright with them. Um, you can even bring up the church in conversation. Just say, I'm going off to Utah. People will often ask, really, Utah? You have connections in Utah? I have family there. Uh, are you a Mormon? And then off you go. But you don't have to do too much. Just a little bit, you know? And, and the conversations will go as they go. If you're sensitive, you won't push it too much. But if they ask questions, you can answer them. I just want to say that uh, it's important for us to bear our testimonies at all times and in every way we can. Now, this is one of my favorites. Uh, and then I'll be done, mercifully. Um, my favorite argument against the witnesses, the best one I've ever seen, is someone who wrote to me once saying, and I, I may have mentioned this before, I apologize if I repeat it, but I love it. He said, uh, David Whitmer, who was the last surviving one of the witnesses, only kept telling the story that he did because he knew that if he spilled the beans, Brigham Young would have him rubbed out. <laughs> well, you know, there's an obvious fallacy with this, which is Brigham Young died in 1877 and David Whitmer died in 1888. So he had 11 years where he should have felt fairly secure. Um, but he went on telling the story. But here's the real clincher. When David Whitmer died, look at his tomb, uh, the tomb marker, Whitmer, David Whitmer, there on the right side. And then it says, what does it say? The record of the Jews and the record of the Nephites are one. Truth is eternal. Okay? David Whitmer wanted to bear his testimony beyond the grave. And he's doing it in many ways, but including that tombstone. Now, I, I say... After 1888, when David Whitmer is dead, he really should be feeling secure from Brigham Young. 
He didn't have to do this. He could have left a note saying, you know, by the way, it was all made up. It's all a lie. But he doesn't do that. But he, he wanted to bear his testimony as widely as he could. And he did. Um, and he's a model for us in that regard. And so you can, you can help out in this cause in so many ways. The missionary fund, all those sorts of things. But also by, by volunteering, by donating to these organizations, um, by, by writing. If you feel like writing something for one of our groups, for Interpreter, for example, I don't control the peer review process. They once rejected the man that I home taught. It was a really uncomfortable home teaching visit. He'd just gotten the, the news that day. Uh, the first line when I walked in was, why did you reject my article? Which I had encouraged him to submit, by the way. It was, it was very embarrassing. Um, but anyway, if you want to write something, consider writing it. Submit it. Put it up online. Whatever you want to do. But everybody needs to be involved in this. If you're a committed believer, that's one of our responsibilities. I bear you my testimony that it is. And that there are ways for us to do it now that never existed for our ancestors. If you lived in the mountain valleys of Utah, you couldn't reach the people in Nepal. But you can now. You can reach people all around the world. It's an exciting time in that regard. The internet has been used extensively against Mormonism, against the Latter-day Saints. But it doesn't have to be that way. We can turn the tide. We have the capacity and most of us the dedication. We can do it. I bear you that testimony in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Here's one question. Is Mary Whitma going to be represented in the video you're working on? Absolutely yes. There are several unofficial witnesses to the Book of Mormon, and I want their testimonies in the project too. What future projects are on the docket for interpreter and apologetics? Well, you know, one thing is just to keep churning out the articles. We set out initially to do an article every week for two or three weeks. We wanted to establish a presence. As tomorrow, we'll be celebrating our sixth birthday. We have published an article every Friday, at least one, sometimes two, occasionally three. It was two today. Um, every week for six years. Okay, so. Which, which blows me away. I mean, I, I, we've created a monster now. I think to myself, okay, if we ever miss a week, I know the critics. They'll say, ha, we knew they'd fail. Um, anyway, so we just have to keep doing it. But we have, we have books we have this new book available out there, I think, now. Um, this just came out, I mean, hot from the press. And we've got other books and conferences we want to do and just keep the articles going and lots of projects. Again, partially it's contingent on funding. Um, okay. Um, like Elder Pearson, I think there's a problem for today's public with the word apologetics. Why not rename it? Uh, renamed to Foundation for Answers, Information, and Research. Well, they've actually renamed it already. It's Fair Mormon. I mean, they, they I'm on the board. But um, uh, so we don't use Foundation for Apologetic Information Research anymore because we realized that was a problem. But we try to go to other terms. We think, well, defense of the faith, and then people want to know, why are you so defensive? So, you know, uh, it's hard to know. Apologetics outside of Mormonism is a really widely used term. We just don't use it much in the church. Uh, but I've had several people, including general authorities, say, you've got to drop that. I mean, Elder Pearson today, uh, other, other general authorities have said, yes, yeah, it's just not a good word. Well, if we can come up with a better one, uh, we'll do it. How can we join with the evangelicals so we could accomplish more in the social, political culture, uh, a.k.a. Eric Metaxas, great writer? Um, well, I think we're trying to do that more and more. And I have actually, one of the ideas I've had for a conference is I would like to get together with some evangelical philosophers and Catholic philosophers and thinkers that I know because a lot of us are dealing with the same issues. We differ on, on certain specifics, but we're all facing an increasingly secularized culture. And so I think we could learn a lot from each other talking about those sorts of things. How can we deal with that? I, if, if some of the people there can overcome their objections to even being in the same room with the Latter-day Saint, uh, and I know some who probably could, then we might be able to do something really, really interesting in that regard that might be useful, just to sort of brainstorm together. Um, how can you handle all the criticism you receive? And don't you get discouraged at times? Oh, well, you have to be really thick-skinned. I admit sometimes it astonishes me. Uh, it really does astonish me how obsessive some people are. 
I've become sort of a lightning rod. I don't know uh, why, but uh, but I get it. I'm I sort charming of personality. charming personality. That's it. Yeah. Um, usually I don't get discouraged because I just find it. Well, I think, man, wow, why didn't I study abnormal psychology? Because uh, some of this is just distinctly weird. This malevolent stalker that I talk about, I don't know who he is. I don't think we've ever met. He's never given any indication that we know each other or have had a personal interaction. He's been at it for 15 years. 15 years. I mean, every week, most days. I get obscene emails from, I suspect, from him most weeks, sometimes three and four. I just don't get it. It's been going on for a long time. Anyway, distinctly weird. Um, yeah, Elder Pearson questioned the word apologetics because it's misunderstood by mo most people what to do. Well, we're always looking for better ways of expressing it. I talk about it as uh, what we're doing is defending and commending the gospel or the claims of the restoration, advocating the gospel, the claims of the restoration, something like that. Um, something catchy would be nice. Most understand that prophets are human and are subject to making mistakes. If we are to rely on the spirit as the main source of truth and discernment, how do we avoid becoming selectively obedient to the words of prophets? That's a really good question. How do you propose we teach others to follow the prophets with confidence if their teachings today could be disavowed in the future? For example, explanations for the priesthood ban. Boy, um, this, is a, <laughs> this goes beyond the time I have to discuss it here. On the whole, I think it's safe to trust the prophets. I think you're okay. You know, and if the prophet is wrong, it's not going to be something in most cases like kill your neighbor. Uh, you're not going to do anything too seriously wrong. Um, the priesthood ban, well, that's a complex issue. I am puzzled by the priesthood ban. I don't say that it was instituted by revelation. This is going to get me in trouble. But, uh, but I'm puzzled by an account that I read in uh, Greg, uh, what's his name? Greg Prince's David O'McKay and the beginnings of modern Mormonism, whatever it's called. Um, he tells of an occasion where President McKay came into his office one morning and said, well, I'm never going to do that again. And people asked him, well, what? You know, he, had, he had brought up the question of the priesthood ban with the Lord and felt he had been reamed out, basically. That the Lord had told him, I'm going to change it, but not during your time. You've asked me this often enough, now stop it. And he said, okay, that's it. I'm not going to do it again. Um, so why it wasn't changed before it was changed, I don't know. But I think the situation was a little more complex, in my view, than to simply say, well, it was a mistake. It could have even started as a mistake. I don't know. But for some reason, it was not supposed to end until it did end, or something like that. At least that's, the evidence seems to me to suggest that. So I, I think even in that case, you were, you were okay if you followed the prophets until 1978. And then on June 9th, June 10th, you're okay if you follow the prophets immediately thereafter because they've received the word of God. Um, so I think you're safe in following the prophet. I learned that in primary. Um, so, rightfully so. You invited us to preach, promote, and defend the faith. How can we avoid bad apologetics? I've come across popular LDS blogs that seek to do good, but that are criticized by more scholarly members. Just how informed and learned does one need to be to engage in good apologetics? Well, there is no easy answer to that one. I'd say you just try not to go beyond what you know. Um, you know... Your speculations are not going to do the church much good. It's better not to put out bad apologetics. It's better to be silent than to put out bad arguments that can be shot down. Be really careful about that. And, and be careful in the things that you pass on. Um, th there are some theories out there that are circulating that I just think are, well, they're not going to last. And people who depend on them, I won't name them, uh, but people who depend on them will eventually find out that they're wrong. And then what I worry about is what will happen to their testimonies when they base their testimonies too much on a theory that, that turns out to be false and unjustifiable. Um, so there's not a neat rule on that. That's another one I could go on. Check to see if article on interpreter first. Yeah, check. that's a good suggestion. Check, check to see if this author has written for interpreter. If he or she has, it's okay. You know, If not... Wouldn't yeah. touch them with a 10-foot pole. And that's not serious. Please don't report that as a serious suggestion. Anyway, well, thank you very much, and thank you, everybody, for coming to this conference. Thank you. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
Well, we wind to a close with our fair conference. Uh, I just wanted to report that with current pledges or current donations and pledges, we had a few people that aren't able to don donate today, but they've pledged. Go on, okay. Uh, we, we received a total of $15,926.33. Thank you very much. Really appreciate that. Okay, Matt Bowen has arrived with his books. He will sign. And other than that, I hope to turn in your name badge if you get a chance. It saves us a few dollars. Uh, we'll send you something on feedback. Please give feedback uh, to, about the speakers. And the first weekend in or the first Thursday, Friday, or perhaps again Wednesday, Thursday, Friday in August, we'll have a con we'll, it'll be fair conference again. Let me ask one last question before you go. We did three days this time. I happen to like the Wednesday, but what do you think? Three days again or two days? Three days? Three days. Oh. Bring the women again. They were really good, weren't they? Okay, thank you very much.